from the ISC, I'm Lara Pedley and welcome back to the ISC podcast, where I speak with inspiring insurance leaders about networking, mentorship and building a successful career in insurance. This week, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Kelly Lars. Kelly Lars is the Chief Executive, Client and Country Management for AXAXL. Prior to joining AXAXL, Kelly was Head of Specialty Lines for AIG Europe, Middle East and Africa Business. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kelly. We spoke about how to find a mentor, how to navigate a career in a large organisation and about her nomination as Insurance Woman of the Year. Kelly and I start our conversation at the beginning of her career, when she wasn't entirely sure about what she wanted to do. Well, um, where it all began was in New York, uh, which is where I'm from. And like many people, I fell into insurance. And I guess just out of university, I had thought that um, I wanted to pursue something that was a bit analytical, but also had a bit of sales. And um, so I had chosen uh, banking and uh, being a loan officer um, until I answered a blind ad in the Wall Street Journal looking for graduates uh, for AIG's graduate program. And so I learned about insurance there um, and sort of fell in love with it. And the rest is history. Blind ad. Wow, that doesn't happen anymore, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, people, I don't think they put ads in newspapers anymore. <laughs> what was the industry like for a young, ambitious female back then? Well, uh, there weren't very many women, I would say. Um, but, I, you know, I think I I wasn't as aware of it um, I, as I became probably later on. And I, I try and look at it as for, as for the positive, so look at the positive side of um, there not being very many women because that meant that we stood out. So those of us that were there were a bit unusual and we weren't just another guy in a dark suit. Um, so, you know, the industry was much more conservative. Um, you know, I remember when I moved, first moved to London, um, women had just only been allowed to, to go into the room uh, at Lloyd's uh, a few years before. Uh, we had to wear skirts. We weren't allowed to wear trousers. Um, wearing anything colorful sort of really made you stand out. So um, so it was very, very conservative, much more conservative than it is now. So I think we've evolved quite a lot. What did success look like for you back then compared to now? Oh, gosh. Um, I think not living paycheck to paycheck would have um, been uh, success for me back then. <laughs> Um, but no, seriously, I, I, I think I, um, when I looked around me and I looked at my, um, my colleagues, um, I, I thought the travel was, um, you know, when my boss went on a two week business trip, I thought that was really cool. Um, and, you know, it's only in the last probably 10, 15 years that I realized, um, what he meant when he said, it's not what you think it is. And, <laughs> and it isn't. Um, but, you know, back then I thought any business trip was cool. Um, but I thought for success for me it was probably, um, uh, moving overseas and, um, and trying something different and yeah, just, um, you know, starting a new product or, a new area of the world, or um, I was always interested in in the global um, franchise. So, and now, uh, now I think I've I've kind of done that overseas thing. So <laughs> I, I never went back to the UK to the US. So, 
Um, but I think, you know, success for me now is, um, mm-hmm. is when we, um, we have a good quarter, when we have a good year, when we turn something around, when, um, we help a client out of a problem that, um, you know, they weren't able to solve themselves. I, you know, those are the things that I think you go home at the end of the day and you feel are, um, you know, you've really added something or you've put, really put value back in. And what made you decide to move to the UK? So you were born in the US and um, you've lived in both the UK and Paris. Yes. Is that right? Yep. Uh, so why the move? Um, well, the move came uh, ironically because um, the really dull side is that the Companies Act changed in the UK to allow companies to buy directors and officers liability insurance. And um, that meant that... Um, the company I was working for thought there'd be an onslaught of submissions, and they were right. And there weren't a whole lot of people that had that UK um, experience. And uh, although I only had five years of it, it was enough. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, you know, I think I, I would have swam here. Um, <laughs> I was so excited, and I loved it. You know, I mean, they, they say there are three phases to moving to a new culture, where the first is where you're, like, on holiday and everything's new and wonderful, and the second is, why do they do it this way, and, you know, um, why does it rain every day, uh, <laughs> et cetera. And then the third is where you just accept the differences between um, home and, and overseas. And I honestly, I can tell you, I never remember that second phase. I think I just moved straight into um, the third phase of just feeling at home and, you know, on and off. Um, I've been here longer than I've lived in the United States. So mm. it is like home. So before working for Excel Group, you worked for AIG for 29 years. Yep. What helped you navigate your way through the company and um, uh, led you to the chief executive role you're in today? Um, so, uh, you know, I think it, when you when you look at AIG, it's a really large company and um, they do or did invest a lot of time in, in their people. Um, I think I was challenged at every step along the way. Whenever I started to get bored, they found something else that they threw at me. And, and so I think that that's the main thing that I was continually challenged and, um, and really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, it would be remiss of me not to mention that there are a lot of people along the way that helped me and, uh, you know, people that stand out and, um, those, that's what helps me. You know, it's never one person that moves through a career. It's always um, because of some of the uh, helping hands that they get along the way. And mm-hmm. um, it would be remiss if I didn't mention that. What were some of the most challenging moments you had when you were at AIG? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I guess the most challenging moment would have to be the financial crisis of 2008. Mm-hmm. Um I would add that it was probably one of the most rewarding times as well. I think most people who lived through that would would agree. Um, you really you learned a lot about yourself. You learned a lot about your colleagues. Uh, you learned a lot about the people in the market who supported you and those who didn't. Um, but um, so it was it was a real time of learning, but a real time of um, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, just yeah, learning your resilience, you know, and and um, and realizing that another day uh, would dawn, and and you'd wake up and think, gosh, did 
did I did I dream it? That was awful. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was real. And you got through another day and then another day. And pretty soon that became normal. And, and you know, the expression, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, I think is um, probably sums up the whole thing. Mm. What? So moving on slightly, what is a typical day like for you in the UK? Well, I have a global role, so I would say um, a typical day for me uh, when I'm not traveling is mm-hmm. um, probably having catch-up calls with a lot of my colleagues. Um, and I, you know, I try to remember that my role is also should be externally facing, and that I um, I have at least one meeting or one one phone call a day that's not um, doing internal stuff, but the, that I'm touching um, our clients and brokers. Your role as a company is to help clients with risk. How has that role changed since you've been in the industry um, and in AXA, Excel or Excel Group, um, given the increased challenges with cyber and climate change? Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. I think, you know, when I when I look at when I first started, um, there were new new products that were coming out. And, and I started in financial lines. So DNO was a new product, believe it or not, back then. Um, particularly for clients outside the United States. So I, I think that uh, emerging risk um, is is one of the big things. But I, I think also the, the concept of um, bespoke solutions, whether it's, um, you know, finite risk or using captives or just uh, reacting to something that a client specifically has rather than something that's off the shelf and uh, preordained as far as, as what we're offering. It is what it is, but it doesn't have to stay that way, is a motto you say you live by. (laughs) I love that. As we know, insurance can be quite a traditional industry when it comes to change. How have you enabled change in the organization you work for? Well, and I think it goes back to your last question, that that things do change and that our clients... um, exposures and um, and their appetite for volatility changes so um, and that's what we say that we're here uh, we're here for you know Excel used to have a model um, you know we make your world go and that that was exactly it that we were there to help provide um, the insurance solutions that helped companies uh, take that volatility out and actually do what they're, they're supposed to be doing mm-hmm. so um, so I expect that's more like it that um, sometimes it is what it is but um, if we all work together it doesn't have to stay that way if it's a negative it's if it's a good thing it's then <laughs> yeah, keep it don't fix what's not broken yeah. you also said in um, the book that we produced last year last year inspirational women in risk uh, the best piece of advice you've ever been given is not to wait for someone to ask if you want the role but to go and ask for it again great advice what advice would you give to young professionals that are trying to implement that into their career yeah, I, I think what I meant by that is that sometimes um, if you're not clear uh, with what you want, people make assumptions. And um, so when I say clear, I don't mean demanding or threatening or, um, you know, putting a gun to your boss's head, but just being um, just being clear with what you want, because otherwise people assume um, something else, possibly. And, and I remember earlier in my career, I had, there was a woman that worked, uh, with me and I, I always assumed that she wanted my job next. And when she told me that she didn't, she wanted to do something completely separate, um, and different from our department, I was shocked. Um, but if she hadn't told me, 
I would not have made that assumption. And same thing with myself personally. I think people made assumptions about uh, my personal life, that I was married to a Brit, that this was where I wanted to stay. And if I hadn't made it clear that I was open to uh, moving, I don't know that I would have ever moved to Paris. We talk a lot about the importance of a network, especially in locating mentors and sponsors outside of your organization. Did you prioritize networking early on in your career? No, actually, I didn't. And I think that is uh, back to your uh, previous question. That's one of the uh, recommendations that I would make to anyone. Just make sure you, you create a network and keep it. And I think, you know, um, networks can be superficial, people that you meet, that you're acquainted with, that um, uh, you don't have a deep relationship with, or they can be people that um, that you really rely on and work with every day and talk to uh, quite often. And, you know, today, things like LinkedIn are uh, make it really easy to keep that sort of more superficial um, network going. Um, but I, um, I tell people all the time that it's really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. Because, you know, you, you might need to call somebody or you have a question for someone. And so, you know, not to do it at the cost of all else. I mean, you know, doing your job is probably the most important thing. Um, you have to do that well. But then having the having that external and internal network um, is really important. And I think, the, you know, the internal network is important because um, when you think about being in the room and the people that are deciding who's going to get a job. Um, if you have one person in the room that's your advocate, uh, that's great. But if you have a network of people in the room that go, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Laura. She's terrific. She should really have this job. Then that makes it all the more easy. And mm. people don't necessarily think that way. Um, I know I didn't um, until you start to see how it works, but that's how it works. Mm. And you mentioned LinkedIn, uh, given that your job is a global role, how do you maintain those relationships cross border when you're not uh, seeing these people regularly? Uh, well, internally, so for my my team, uh, we use a number of um, uh, social media, you know, we use WhatsApp, um, obviously email. Uh, we have regular calls, and I encourage everyone to have regular calls within their um, smaller groups and within any other stakeholders that might uh, be influencing what they do. Um, and then I think that that wider group, it's, uh, you know, it, LinkedIn is just much better than business cards, right? I mean, <laughs> um, the Rolodex, you know, you can't travel with that, but, you know, you can travel, you've got got your Rolodex in the palm of your hand if um, mm. if you put all your contacts into LinkedIn. Not everyone's on it, but but it certainly helps you keep in touch with people who have changed roles or moved or whatever because um, it updates automatically for you. Absolutely. <laughs> I've actually stopped taking business cards around with me. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why the phones don't um, just have a way that I can just airdrop it to you or something. I mean, you know, when you think of those old, um, you guys are too young, uh, the... Palm Pilots. You probably don't even remember that, say. Um, okay, that was the precursor to a mobile device. But um, you could zap your business card to somebody else as long as they had a Palm Pilot, which very few people did. But uh, but I don't know why we can't just do that with our phones. Mm. Maybe there is a way. We just haven't figured it out yet. That's true, too. <laughs> um, you've always been open about the sponsors that have helped you along the way. How did you acquire those sponsors and maintain those relationships? 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really good question. People often ask me what the difference is between a mentor and a sponsor. And I think sometimes a mentor can be a sponsor, mm. um, but doesn't always have to be. Um, so a mentor is usually somebody who um, is helping you maybe with um, certain questions you have or behaviors or how to um, how to react in, in different situations or with a technical skill. Um, and a sponsor is that person that's in the room that bangs the table and says it should be Laura. Uh, Laura should have this job. Mm. And so I think, you know, a mentor or a boss or one of your connections can become a sponsor because the sponsor's invested in you, right? They're putting their neck on the line for you. Uh, they are sponsoring you. And so your natural, through the course of your natural day or relationship, some people are going to be your sponsors or they're not, mm. right? Depending on mm. how they feel about you. You can't make someone be a sponsor mm. unless you pay them a lot. <laughs> um, and so I, I think um, I, I have had both. I've had mentors and sponsors that... Um, uh, that have really helped me. And I know um, when I was at AIG, we were we had a uh, women's network and we were all assigned sponsors, which is a difficult thing because it mm. means that they you have to work on the relationship because they're not going to stick their neck out day one. Um, and I had a great experience with that um, uh, as as an assigned sponsor because um, you know we got to know each other and. Um, well, I can only really speak for myself, but um, I um, I had a great respect for um, for the man as as it was, and um, and I think he helped me quite a bit as well. So, well, that was going to be my next question. Um, it, there's a lot of talk in the market at the moment about getting a sponsor, and not every company is assigning sponsors. And if they are assigning sponsors, how do you? let your sponsor know what you're doing so that they can um, socialize that with their own network without being um, pushy or boasting, yeah. if you will? So um, I, I think the first thing is picking the right sponsor. And uh, and often uh, people say, all right, well, my I'm going to pick my boss. And I say, don't pick your boss because your boss already is or isn't your sponsor. Mm. Um, pick someone that's sort of outside your normal network. So if you think about that room where people are deciding what that next job is that you want and you want as many people around that table banging it for you, um, banging the table for you. <laughs> Um, and so pick somebody that you wouldn't normally, um, come into contact with, you know, if you, if you're being assigned a sponsor, take it as an opportunity to get to know somebody that isn't normally in your, in your sphere. Mm. Um, and, and that way that just adds to the numbers, the numbers game around the table of people that, that are supporting you. Uh, and then I think, you know, it just, it's, um, it's, like, you can't really prescribe how you get to know somebody or, or how the dialogue works. But I, you know, back to being open and honest with what it is that you want to do and what it is that you think might be holding you back. So you can talk about your strengths being mm. the things that you've achieved without boasting. Mm. Um, and, and then the things that you might need to learn more about, um, as, you know, the detractors for what's going to hold you back to get it. And, and they can help you with how you fill that gap uh, to move forward. Mm. And a bit about being adaptable, right? Yeah. A lot of the people will respond differently to, That's right. yeah. to how you approach them. As a mother with three boys, how have you managed to maintain a successful career as well as a family life balance? 
Well, I I certainly didn't travel as much when um, my children were younger. Um, that was a personal choice, and um, and that was personal to me. Obviously, it was not what I wanted to do. Um, so I think that helped. That even though I might have worked late, I was still home um, at night when they were young. Uh, but I I also think it's it's a compromise. So um, uh, you know I. If you spoke to them, I I don't think that they would feel that they um, had a disjointed childhood. But equally, they um, they did make comments when they were little about um, why I wasn't at home like some other mothers. You know, they didn't see that the mothers that were working; they only saw the ones that were um, at the school gate. So, mm-hmm. so you know, for me, it's a compromise. I um, uh, and I don't know it's a compromise that I was happy with in the end and. Um, and I think you just have to make sure that you're there for the important things in life. Um, you don't have to be there every day to drop them off, but mm. when they have a school play or an event that's important, mm. um, that's that's what you prioritize. And I think, you know, when I look at the way we're able to work now, um, and particularly XXL's approach to flexible working and um, remote working, uh, that would have been a real benefit uh, mm-hmm. when my children were lo- were younger, because um, there still was a stigma to leaving to go watch the school play, where um, you know that's not an issue at all now. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know we've evolved as an industry, and certainly as a company, we're terrific at trying to be flexible like that. Mm. As I mentioned before, you were awarded the Insurance Woman of the Year 2019 by the Association of Professional Insurance Women. How did that come about and how was it receiving that award in the States this year? Well, it was great because, as you said, I, I haven't really worked in, in the U.S. Um, for um, for very long and it was um, over 30 years ago that I did. Um, I uh, So I, I was um, humbled and honoured and all the rest to have received it. Uh, you know, I I think Greg Hendrick, um, our CEO, said it best when he said, you know, we'll we'll really have achieved when he introduced me for the award, and he he said it best when he said that we'll we'll have received we'll have sorry we'll have achieved success when fifty percent of the insurance person of the year are women like Kelly, and I think that's absolutely true that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we shouldn't have to have these um, insurance woman of the year, insurance whatever of the year. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, we'll, when diversity is is truly championed, um, we won't need to have those type of awards anymore. Um, the representative or proportional um, percentage of uh, recipients will be of that. And okay. uh, but it was still great. And until we have that, I, as I said, um, when I accepted it, I was going to swim back to London with the award. So. <laughs> Well said, Greg. You've also been involved in the Insurance Supper Club for a long time. How did you get involved with it and what has it done for you personally? Um, I have been involved from, I think, from the beginning when um, it really was a supper club and we were meeting for uh, dinner in a restaurant and um, all throwing our credit cards in at the end. Uh, It was organized by Barbara, so um, how I got involved was because Barbara invited me. and I, I think you know one of the one of the best things that I've gotten out of it is meeting other women um, at various stages of my career um, that were in the market that you know I, I might have known a lot of the brokers, not all of them, but I might have known um, some of the brokers, but I had it was very 
um, rare to meet the other underwriters. So um, for me, it was meeting, you know, the people that I wouldn't have normally come across, and it was a great opportunity for networking. Um, and you know, and now for meeting um, some of the younger talent that's coming through the market, I and mean, that's quite exciting and quite fun. Great. What is your one do and one don't for a successful career in insurance? Uh, well, I think we talked about the do um, uh, before um, to network. I, I used to say to uh, to young underwriters, make sure you understand your your policy to understand what it is that you're selling, know it in and out. Um, but I'm not sure that's as. I, I think you still need to do that. But I would I would uh, recommend not to be silent. So I guess that's my don't. Um, but and to be um, curious about other parts of uh, the industry and your company because things change so fast that um, you know what's uh, what's here today might not be here tomorrow. So um, maintaining that curiosity about other bits of the organization um, will probably help you uh, in in the next role that you that you look to take. Great. Well, thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you, Laura. You've been listening to the ISC podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. You can get more information about the ISC at www.theinsurancesupperclub.com. Our show is produced by Connor Sweetman of Breakthrough Media. I'm Lara Pedley. See you next time.